Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Take your Bibles, open them to 2 Kings chapter 5, 2 Kings chapter 5, and, and if you want to get ahead, uh, you can, um, yeah, we'll just stay there, 2 Kings chapter 5, we'll stay there for now as we continue on in our study, following along the work of God through the life of Elisha and through the divided kingdom of Israel. Why are they divided? Because after Solomon, King Solomon died, nobody wanted to follow his sons. And, in, and no one wanted to take that, that step to, to, to listen to the elders and to listen to wisdom. And instead, there's a divided kingdom and they stay divided for a very, very long time. And last time in our study, we watched a Gentile get healed. His name was Naaman. And what fascinated me about Naaman, especially the first time, like it, it hit me the first time as I was studying through, it, is that Naaman and his, his need to be healed with leprosy, he was surrounded by unbelief, except for the little girl. She had the faith to encourage him to do what's right. Not even the king of Israel had faith. For the heat. Remember, he thought when Naaman came with the letters that there was some kind of declaration of war. And it just reminded me, those of us, and I do reuse the word us, that have a bent about, of skepticism in us. We just need to keep praying that God would take that away. You know where you, you, get, you get a letter and, and it's a good thing, but immediately you're like, I don't know about this. I'm not sure about this. And, and there is a sense of being spiritually discerning. I don't lose your discernment. But I do think it's important to lose our skepticism. It will help us move forward in faith. And because even Naaman didn't want to go into the waters of the Jordan because they were so dirty. He says, man, if I just needed a dip in water, why can't I do it back uh, in Syria? Why, why couldn't you just, why do I need to come to the Jordan? And, and there was just so much unbelief. But that little girl, she chose not to be bitter, but to embrace her situation in what is happening in her life. And God used him. And there's, Naaman was just seven dips in the Jordan River from being healed. That's all. That's all that held him back from completely having his skin healed of leprosy. It was just seven dips in the water. But it really wasn't seven dips in the water as much as it was seven dips of humility. He was so pride, prideful. He, he was, his response to what Elisha told him to do was just dripping with pride. And so, yeah, it was seven dips in the water to be healed, but it was also seven dips of his pride into the waters of healing. That's it. And we learned so much last time. If you weren't here, you should catch up. It's, I mean, all this study from 1 Samuel all the way through is just one of the most fascinating parts of the Bible, uh, except for the Gospels and following Jesus. I mean, it's just so fascinating, the work of God through ordinary people. Now, we learned last time how leprosy 
Leprosy becomes a a strong picture of the progression of sin in a person's life. But I also want to give you the flip side of that because in one of the commentators, Pastor John Corson, he also draws out how leprosy is a picture of the salvation story. And I just want to share it with you if you take notes because you can study it and see, you know, every time you think of leprosy, it becomes a type of sin and, and how and how sin progresses in a person's life. But also I want to add to you how this situation with Naaman and his leprosy actually reveals the salvation story. Why is that important? Because listen, anytime you're reading the Bible, the central theme of every Bible story, the central theme of every true Bible situation is Jesus Christ, the revelation of Messiah to come. I mean, you need to find as you're reading through, the key to unlocking the scriptures is to see that what, what, they, what is often referred to as that crimson cord throughout the scriptures where you, you just watch this crimson cord, this red cord of salvation as it relates to Jesus Christ and you can't help but see the finished work of the cross right here in the true story of Naaman. So if you're taking notes, number one, leprosy is a picture of sin. And as we've learned in Naaman's life, he is completely, he's dealing with the effects of this disease even as sin completely destroys a person's life. And we looked at that in depth, but that's the first point. Number two, the message of hope was given to a little girl. The message of hope was given to a little girl. Paul tells us that the Lord loves to use the weak things of the world to confound the strong. And the solution to Naaman's problem came in someone you would most naturally ignore. You know, on top of all that, her being uh, in a position of servitude, uh, having been taken from her homeland. And the message of hope is in a child. What did Jesus say? Jesus said that we need to become like little children in following him. That simple, childlike faith. He doesn't say for us to become childish, but childlike in our faith, that if I went downstairs right now into our children's ministry and I pulled up a five-year-old up here and I shared with them some grand glorious thing, they would receive it immediately. Unless one of your kids just cops an attitude on everything, but most of your five-year-olds don't cop attitudes yet. And don't you shake your head and go, you haven't met mine yet. Well, it'll grow out of it, don't worry. Just keep loving them. But most of the time, kids, they just receive. When my nephews uh, found out that we were in uh, Israel recently and we had just texted them to say, hey, we, got, we came back, uh, they're in California and, and, and we're back. One of the things that was, that was shouted or shared from the back was uh, little Evan had wanted to know if we were where David and Goliath fought. He wanted to know that. And I text back, yes, we were there. We don't know exactly where the fight took place. Like Goliath's footprints aren't there in the middle of the valley, but we actually go. It's one of the the places where we just pull off to the side of the road. We walk along a very busy street, a very busy highway, I should say. And we go through and we walk back and we go into a creek bed filled with rocks um, that is in the Elah Valley. That's where the battle of the true story of the Bible where David takes on Goliath. It's right there in the Elah Valley. And part of our time there is to encourage 
to encourage everyone in the, uh, in the Elah Valley that after we're done with our Bible study and we worship there, uh, time is given to go walk and spend some time there. And then in the creek bed, you can pick up some rocks and take them home. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you can bring a bag of them back, take them into your Sunday school. If you want to bring some back uh, to share, uh, you can bring some back. You can bring as many back as you want to bring. They're there uh, for the taking. And it's not illegal. It's okay. Uh, they, they bring a truck and dump rocks there every week. No, I'm just kidding. They don't. There's a bunch of rocks there. And, and so we take them back. And, and for me personally, the last four years, I've been taking a rock. Uh, it represents uh, a giant in my life. Uh, the situation is, is monumentally bigger than I could ever. I, I have no, I've faced a lot of problems in life and a lot of difficulties. And God has got them through us all, but not this one. Not yet. Not yet. So every year, that's what's on my heart when I go to the Elah Valley. It's a giant in my life. I, I'm not able to uh, overcome it in my own strength. I'm not able. I don't have the timing or the ability or I don't even have a voice in this situation. As much as many places God has given me a voice, I have no voice in this situation. I have to trust God. So I bring a little rock. Well, I always bring some extras and I just, I, I put them in my pocket and then throw them in my suitcase and I bring them back. And so when I found out uh, that they wanted to know, you know, they wanted to know if you could bring rocks back, before, before I left to Tucson, I put, put those rocks in an envelope, put a couple pictures in there that I took of that area, and I sent them to California. Uh, and I know, I know what's going to happen. Uh, they're going to open up, and they are going to be just so appreciative of these little rocks that were in my pocket and I threw in my bag. Why? Because they're childlike faith, man. When they think of David and Goliath, they don't think of it as some childhood um, story. They think of it in the context of victory and strength. And this is amazing. And maybe one day I'll be a Goliath. And maybe one day, and who knows? They might, who knows what they'll do? They might take the rocks and throw them over the fence. Who knows? Who knows? But those rocks, some way, with the help of their parents, and then I'll follow up with them later this week, we'll, we'll be able to speak to them and say, God is bigger than your problems. God can, can speak, and, and that what you read in the Bible, what you read in the Bible, it is true and accurate, and we were there. We stood there. We walked there. And in February, it's uh, very much more green than we've ever seen it before. The, mount, the, the hillsides were green. The whole valley was green. It was unbelievable. But those kids, now some of you, you're like, get over with this illustration. I get it with rocks. I know, I know, I got a lot of rocks. I know, I understand, I have to do rocks. But, but that's because you're not being childlike. That's just because you've grown up and you're hardened a little bit. And, and, and you, you, don't, you don't have that wonder and awe that comes with that faith that you have in Jesus Christ. And you're just so, the Goliath is just intimidating you. You might be like David's brothers and you're afraid of Goliath. And, and you're cowering in fear. And you don't want to go out and face him. But God wants you in the power. God says, God, God says through David, you know, who are you? Who are you, Goliath, to blaspheme my God? And I don't know how it all went down to how a little kid in the midst of an army is the only one going forth. Not even Saul said, David, don't go out. I'll go out. What does Saul do? What does King Saul do in all his bravery? He gives David his armor. I mean, a man would say, no way. You have inspired my faith. You stay back. I'll take on Goliath. I'm the king of Israel. But he tries to put on his armor. And, and you know, we learn from that that when you go into battle, you can't wear someone else's armor. You need to go in, in the faith that you have with the Lord. And so, the message of hope is given to this little girl. Number three, the message was more important than the messenger. 
How is this a picture of salvation story? Number one, leprosy is a picture of sin. Secondly, the message of hope was given to a little girl. Thirdly, the message was more important than the messenger. Naaman thought Elisha was going to do something extraordinarily miraculous. Instead, he gave a simple instruction. Go to the Jordan River. Jordan literally means judgment. And he was to go dip seven times. Seven, the number of completion. That this was going to be a complete work. How are we to be cleansed by our sins so that immersing ourselves fully in the judgment that Jesus bore for us on the cross? And I just love this. He developed it far more than that. But I wanted to lay before you that as we're walking through the scriptures, the reality of the truths of the Bible come to life. And Jesus is on every page. I'm just telling you right now, what you're in the middle of, a relationship with Jesus Christ is the solution to And you go, what do you mean a relationship with Jesus Christ? Look, just like you have a relationship with friends and family, just like you enjoy conversation, how some of your people, how some of the people in your life help you and you help others, God is real. And the only way to relate to him is in relationship. And the only way to start a relationship with him is to recognize what he's done on your behalf, the great gift he's extended to you. That, not on, that, that, that the amount of money that you have and the amount of smarts that you have and, and, and even maybe your life was really, really bad and then you went through maybe a divorce, now you're remarried and things are so much better, they're really not as good as they could be if you would submit your life to Jesus Christ and learn to live in a way that's in relationship with him. Because when we don't live loving and sharing with one another, we break relationships. Sometimes one party breaks relationships, sometimes it's two parties, but with, between you and God, it's only one party. You've broken relationship with God. And the Bible says it's because of your great failures. The Bible says you're disconnected from God because, because you carry on the weight of your great failures. And there are heavy weights to carry, aren't they? This world will just kick you up and down while you're down, while you're trying to get up. And, and there's even the pattern that some develop over time, not everybody, but some where they self-destruct, where you just start to make progress and then you find yourself making the same mistake over again or it's worse that time and, and, and you, you just live a life where you make so much progress and then boom, you do it again. And what God is wanting us to understand is that he has a plan for our lives. He has a direction. If we will just dip seven times with our pride and admit that God's way is better than our way and follow his precepts. You go, well, what do you mean follow his precepts? Well, God said if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, if you'll confess with your mouth that you have failed God, the Bible word for that is sin, that you failed God. And if you will believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And you go, what do you mean, believe in your heart? Well, let me ask, um, how many of you have never been to New Zealand before? Just raise your hand. How, never been to, I've never been to New Zealand, okay? Put your hands down. How many of you believe New Zealand exists? How can you believe that? You've never been there. It could be one of those other flat earth things, you know? New Zealand's off the end of the flat earth. The Bible teaches the earth is round, so you can dismiss all the flat earth theories, okay? But how do you prove New Zealand is real? Why do you even believe that? Stop believing. 
that New Zealand exists. You've never been there. You've never touched the dirt. You've never heard the accent, mate, or whatever they say there. I don't know what they say, but you've never heard it for yourself. You've never seen a kangaroo there. You've never eaten the food there. You know, we have uh, missionaries out there, but you haven't seen them there. Maybe they're taking pictures with a fake background, and they're right outside the doors, always peeking in, going, <laughs> we're really not there. We're here. Why aren't we there? Because it doesn't, why do you believe that? I'll tell you why. Evidence. There's evidence. And for everyone that raised their hand, you have determined that there's enough evidence that New Zealand exists without you ever seeing it, without you ever being there, without you ever visiting, without you getting on a plane, spinning, without you ever being there. You believe there's enough evidence, whatever it is for you, whatever the threshold of evidence is for you. It's all different. You believe New Zealand exists. Is there anyone here that has been to New Zealand? Okay, so these are the people, just in case you still doubt, that you can ask them. And what will they do? What will they do? They will give you eyewitness accounts of New Zealand. They will say, I was there. They will say, I felt that. I smelled that. I saw that. I was there. I handled that. I went on the bus and I went to my friend's house and I ate the special meal that was there and I ran away from a kangaroo. Whatever it is there, they will be able to say and, and you will then go over the edge, no doubt. You'll say, now I believe even more. I've never been there, but, but by the eyewitnesses, I, w- I was there. I believe it was there. I, I believe it exists because now the eyewitnesses put me over the edge. When it comes to Jesus Christ, How many of you have seen Jesus Christ in the flesh? How many? Oh my, not one hand. Not one hand. And yet, so many of us believe. Why? Evidence. There is so much evidence that points us in the direction that Jesus Christ is real piece after piece after piece of evidence. Of course, there's the Bible. The Bible is one of the greatest pieces of evidence that Jesus Christ exists. And you go, but Ed, I don't believe in the Bible. Okay, I respect that. I respect that at this phase in your life, you don't believe in the Bible. And what, what we would do then for someone that doesn't believe in the Bible is then we would begin to give you evidence of, of how this book has tested, has, has made it through the test of time how emperors and kings have had tried to destroy the Bible. How, although we're reading it in the English language today, how we could go backwards and show you how the translations would match to the thousands of manuscripts that exist today that take us to about the first century. We don't have the autographs, but we have copies of the autographs. How we would be able to tell you that all those pastors all those that were teaching the Bible in the first century, that if we didn't have a Bible, and none of us had a Bible today, and none of our apps could pull up a Bible, that we could go to the men that taught the Bible in that first and second century, that century right after the, the, the apostles, everybody in the Bible, they died off, and it was those guys that followed the apostles, the, the followers of Jesus. You had Jesus, those that followed him, and then the next generation 
After those guys died, there was another generation because it keeps getting passed down like I'm passing it down to you. So that second generation of believers, when you read through their messages, they quote the Bible to like 98 or 99%. So if you took all their quotations, you can make the Bible, you could take the Bible out of their quotations and say, look, this is what they were saying in the years, you know, 100 to 200 AD. And so there's evidence there's archaeological evidence, just like I mentioned earlier. If we went, I could take you to Israel. You want to go to Israel and see things with your own eyes? I could take you there. And I can show you where things took place. Well, you know, I don't know if Jesus ever went on on the Sea of Galilee. I'll take you there and you can walk in the Sea of Galilee. Take your shoes off and go dive in if you want. It's still there. Yeah, well, I don't know about this, you know, what amount of olives and where the Bible says that when Jesus comes back, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives and he's going to break right down the Kidron Valley, right into the eastern. Well, we could take you there. We not only will see the big picture there, but we'll walk right up to it. You'll be able to see it. You can touch it. You can smell it. You can lick it if you want. It's all right. You go, man, I could lick the dirt off the ground in Israel. Great. Tell your grandkids. That's, that's very exciting. You can do it. The archaeological evidence is amazing. The, 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 the ability to know that the manuscript evidence, it's, it's unbelievable. The fact that this book would be able to prophesy and predict hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of things to a T. Not, not just, you know, how sometimes the predict, those that try to predict things today, they'll go and do, oh, I think tomorrow it will be blue skies. Well, come on, man. But what if you say, you know, tomorrow... Jesus Christ will be born from a virgin's womb. And it happens. You go, oh, that's not possible. How is that possible? Well, ask the man she was betrothed to. He will attest to you that they had yet consummated their marriage. I mean, it's just unbelievable. The statistical probability of all these things coming together so that the message really is far greater than the messenger. It's far more important. It's far greater. And you can bring your skepticism to the Bible. And you can bring your skepticism to who God is. And you can bring your skepticism to a church and the teaching. And you're listening on the radio. You're just yelling at the radio right now. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. But the reason you're yelling is because there's parts of it that you know are true. And you're fighting to do things your own way. And here's what happens. God will allow you to do things your own way. Coming back to Kings, if Naaman would have said, forget you, I am not dipping in the Jordan, peace out. I'm going back. And if it all needs is to dip in uh, some river, there's more, as he says in the beginning verses that we saw last time, that there's, more, there's rivers in Syria. I'll dip in there. And what would have happened if he went back and dipped in those rivers? He would have dipped and dipped and dipped and dipped a million times would not, have, would not have cured him of leprosy. Doesn't it fascinate you when you're reading this story? And I know we're not even getting into the next section. We probably will next time. But I just sense, I want, I want you guys, maybe on your mind, maybe you're talking to somebody like this or you, you, you're wanting to communicate, but Naaman, Naaman has everything a person would want. He has status. He has power, he has money, he has a marriage, he has servants that serve his every need. He has everything that he would want. 
Like the world says, I need this and I want this. That, that's how the world ingrains in us. I, I, need, I need to have this and then I want this. You open up the magazines or you're walking through Safeway and there they are on the tabloids and what is being professed to, to so, look what they have. Look what they have. Even in the hotel in Tucson, we had walked in because we left the TV on and we had walked in in the evening and one of the shows was something about like mega rich mansions or something. And I was watching it before I flipped the channel and I was watching it and I, I was thinking, this is somebody's desire. They want this, this mansion, this million, multi-million. They, they not only want the mansion, but they also want the job that gives them the mansion or the inheritance or whatever. They want the money. They want the mansion. They want the money. They, they want the life. They want what they see on television. And the Lord's just speaking to some of you. You're like, that's what I want. You know, I know what the Bible says, that the love of money is the root of all evil, but it's almost like that, that verse, you believe it, but then you're like, Lord, you can test me. I'm all right. You test me on it. Maybe, it won't, won't, maybe love and money won't affect me like that. Just test me. Just give me some money, and maybe, maybe I'll find out. And, and yet, and yet you, you've got everything. You know, you've got your dreams and hopes, or in our country, the American dream, and that's just lined up. This, 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 and this, and it changes from time to time, but man, I want everything. Isn't it, isn't it fascinating to you that when Jesus says, don't go after this stuff, don't do it, don't, don't do it, because this is what the world goes, he used the word Gentiles, but what he's really saying, this is what the world does, this is how the world lives, don't go after that, don't overly desire those things, why? Because your Father in heaven will provide for you. The, the life of faith and the faith that you have and the faith that's exercised, how you're growing and trusting God is more valuable than any bank account, any house, any career, any piece of clothing. And he said, what did he tell us? He said, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. But doesn't food take so much of our time and our thought life? <laughs> And I say, well, you know, we don't worry too much about what we eat. You know, we've, we're a blessed country. We're a blessed nation. We have, but, but doesn't, the Bible says, don't worry about what you're going to eat, but what's on our mind, eat, 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 eat. It doesn't have to be sinful. I'm not speaking like, oh, Ed, what do you want me not to think about? No, 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 no. Just telling you. Look what captures your heart. And what else he says? Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Don't worry about your clothes, clothes, clothes. <laughs> and what? What is every mall made up of? Clothes and food. Clothes and food. Look at the commercials. Clothes and food. Maybe cars. Clothes, food, and cars. Clothes, food, and cars. Clothes, food. What, what am I going to wear? What am I going to wear? Hey, we're going. What am I going to wear? What am I going to wear? Again, that doesn't have to be in the sinful realm. It doesn't even have to be like disobediently. He says, don't do that because that's how the world does things. That's how, that's how the world operates. He says, don't worry about those things. But you know what? Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek God first. Space says, you, you go after God first. You make him the supreme priority in your life. You, you run after who God is and what God wants for you. You go after him. And all these things will be added unto you. God doesn't want you naked and starving. That's not the point. 
naked and starving. Oh, here we are as believers. First of all, that would be really weird if the only ones in the church were naked everywhere. What's wrong with you? I'm a believer. Yeah, but you're weird, dude. Like, put some clothes on. No. Jesus said, don't worry about clothes, so I'm just going to walk around, not worry about clothes. Well, what's that sound I hear? Oh, that's my stomach. What's your problem? I haven't eaten. Well, why? Because Jesus told me I should be naked and hungry. Oh, show me that in the Bible. No, that's not. That's not the heart of the matter. How many times do we miss something that Jesus has for us because we miss the whole point? The whole point isn't for you to be naked and starving. The whole point that our Jesus was saying, he says, you want the fullness of life. You want satisfaction in life. You're not going to find it in money. And you're not going to find it in food. And you're not going to find it in clothing. You're going to find it in God. And his kingdom, which means his rulership over our lives. And what has God done? God has let you rule your life up to this point. Like, like those of you listening to me right now that don't have a real relationship with God, God has let you rule your life up to this point. And, and you, I would have to follow up with that and say, well, how's it working for you? How are you in the satisfaction category? How are you in the peace category? How are you in the confidence category? Who do you run to when you have trouble? Where do you go when the doctor says, I'm sorry, but I can't help you? What happens when your bank account has a negative in front of it instead of a positive? It's red, not black. Where do you run? And God will continue to allow that part of your life. See, the message is more important than the messenger any day of the week. And like Naaman, leprosy is a picture of sin. And all of us have sinned, the Bible says, and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. We all hit the brick wall. We all hit the place where I'm out, I have no ability to get out of this. Secondly, the message of hope was given to a little girl, someone that would be easily dismissed, someone that would be easily ignored, someone that, that we might just, man, I'm not gonna listen to some little girl and you come into a church service, or you turn on some radio, and you go, I'm not going to listen to some guy telling me about the Bible. What gives him the credentials? And what gives him the, you know, in, 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 in this environment, you know, well, what, what seminary did you go to, man? Where, where, what makes you such an authority on the Bible? But he, one thing you have to learn is that the world values human authority, but God is really the only source of authority. And one thing that God has done throughout the ages that you have to give him props for is that he has changed lives in every generation. He has literally, God has literally changed lives. So that, so much so that we give opportunity for people to come up and talk about the changed life. It's called giving a testimony. And, and basically the testimony is where were you? What was your life like before you met God? How did God introduce himself to you? And where are you now? And it, it isn't, I was horrible, I met God, now I'm a perfect person. It's, I'm, I was horrible, I met God, and God is working the horrible out of me. He's changing me. He, he is making me 
less and less of what I was and more and more of who I am. I was talking to a young man not too long ago. He was talking about the concept of Alcoholics Anonymous and and some other like-minded programs like that and, and how it was helping him. And so I'm like, yeah, man, that's really good. I'm, I'm encouraged that it's helping you. And, and we talked a little bit about it, but I asked him, I said, you know, and the topic was, you know, what do you think about that kind of, Ed? What do you think about that? And, and so I asked him, I said, do they make you stand up? I mean, do they do this? Do they make you stand up? And I'm not going to mention what the, what the anonymous was he was on, but they'll use Alcoholics Anonymous because that's a prevalent issue in our society. And, and I remember, because I had to go to AA, uh, I was court mandated to go to AA when I got popped for my second or third DUI. They took my license away, made me go to all these classes, and then I had to go to AA. And I remember getting signed in and everything. And then I learned this. I learned this. They taught me to do this. I'd get up in the group, and I would say, my name is Ed, and I'm an alcoholic. And back then, that was a true statement. So that I could get up in that group and I could say that was actually what I was. I was completely addicted to alcohol with really no, part, no hope of ever getting out from under it. That even when I was going through Alcoholics Anonymous, I was thinking of a way to drink and to get back to my life. I know it was bad. I know I just bankrupt my little family again. I know Marie's going to leave me. I know my son doesn't respect me. I know I'm going to, I have the potential of doing great damage under that. And I know, so I'll go through the classes, but I think after I'm done with the classes and I get my license back, I can just figure out a way to drink without getting in trouble again. That's how my mind worked. Why? Because I was completely sold over to it. I was under the power of it. But then in February of 1991, in a church not unlike this, I was introduced to the hope and the love and the changing power of God. I was told the gospel that Jesus Christ was sent into the world to relate to me and to come and sacrifice his life. Now, my dad was very sacrificial, my mom was sacrificial, but they didn't give their lives for me. They didn't give their lives unconditionally for me. And when I heard about the love of God, when I heard a pastor teach about the love of God, I could only respond by saying, I don't think God could love me. I don't think that pastor is completely accurate. I don't think he knows everybody in the room. Because there's a lot of people in this room that are probably a million times better than me. And God can love them. But me, I know me. There's just no way. I don't even love me. So why would God love me? And, and yet there was such confidence in the love of God. And the confidence is this. God demonstrated his love. That's what the Bible says. God demonstrated his love that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. There was sacrifice. Like even in our worst condition, God demonstrated. He didn't just say it. He says, if you ever doubt it, look, look. Jesus Christ died an innocent death for you and for me. And I responded to the invitation as I'm going to give in just a moment to you. That anyone wants to experience that love and the forgiveness, that you can do that today. And I responded. And while I didn't understand it completely at that day, something happened to me in that evening. I didn't feel it. Fireworks didn't go off. I, was very, I felt very much like the same knucklehead that walked into that church. But behind the scenes... God did something, and one of the things that God did was he made me a new creation in Christ. All things passed away in the past. Behold, all things are new. 
so that if I was to walk into an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting to support somebody and to be there with them and they asked me to get up, I would say, my name is Ed and I'm no longer an alcoholic. I haven't been an alcoholic from the second, the millisecond that Jesus Christ saved my life. He delivered me instantly in that moment from my addiction to alcohol. He delivered me spiritually. He delivered me emotionally. He delivered me physically so that I am no longer, it would not be the truth for me to stand up and say, I am Ed and I am an alcoholic. That's not the truth. The truth is, is that I am Ed and through the power of God, he has delivered me from something that I cannot deliver myself from. That I can go through the 12 steps, but in the 12 steps are just delaying the inevitable. And that is, what do I do when the temptation comes again? What do I do when I'm at Chili's and the bar is to the right? What do I do when I am pressured and Marie and I are arguing and the kids are just out all upside down and I can't pay the bills and I need something and I want something. I had a hard day at work and I just, just feeling the pressure of everything on me and I don't want to feel the pressure and I don't want to be in the moment and I don't want to think about anything and I have this habit of just escaping the moment by drinking to the point of drunkenness. Why, why don't I just, what do I do now when I have that temptation? This is what I do. I trust God to provide all of these things for me because he promised to. And I don't run to the bottle. And so, and so when I think of that, when I think of this, this true story of Naaman, and some of you might be here for the first time, you go, I don't understand. So go back to get the Bible study. Go back to the beginning of chapter five and read the, read, go through the Bible study on our app or on our website and you'll see what happened with Naaman's life, and we went through it. And this story of Naaman is actually a great picture of the salvation story. Because when he dipped in the waters like Elisha told him to, like, like he had to follow the message. He had to do what he was told to do. Even though it struck his pride, even though he didn't want to do it, even though he's a man of great stature, he had everything and yet had nothing. He had a disease that was going to kill him. Money, prestige, all he had it all. And when he responded to the message, when he did what Elisha told him to do, he was cleansed. And when you do what you're told to do, God will cleanse you through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, so that you too can declare, no matter how hard the temptations are, and no matter what you feel, you can stand up and say, I am fill in the blank, and I have been delivered from the sin that has plagued me my whole life. And today I can walk by faith and not run and fail to that temptation. You don't have to identify yourself by your past sin because your past sin doesn't identify you. It actually never did. You just adopted that definition of yourself. I always remember Rahab. You guys are familiar with Rahab in the Bible, yes? And so she has a first, last name, first la middle, and last name, doesn't she? She is Rahab the harlot. What a reputation to have. That's how she's known in the scriptures. Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the sexually promiscuous. Rahab 
This is how we know you. You're the town prostitute of Jericho. You're the one that everyone knew where they had to go, where the guys were going in and out of your house because you were the harlot. You were the harlot. You were the harlot. However, if you go to heaven and because you have that background, you want to meet Rahab, do not ask for Rahab the harlot because she is no longer Rahab the harlot. She's been redeemed fully now. At her point in life, she was looking forward to Messiah, the Savior, But now, after Jesus has come and he set the captives free, she knows Jesus in his fullness. She is no longer Rahab. You can call her Rahab the sister. You can call her Rahab the saint. You can call her Rahab the faithful. But do not call her Rahab the harlot. She's not a harlot anymore. I don't care how many years she was. Why? Because when God changes a person, he changes you from the inside out. He changes you thoroughly. We have it all backwards, and this is where I'll close, and we didn't cover any of the text, but I think God had a word that you might be able to use and minister the gospel to your friends and family, to your coworkers. We have it all backwards, and this is how. We always go on the, try to change the outward in people. Do this, say this, look this way, straighten your your pants, put your belt on, comb your hair, don't party, and we always deal with the outward. And that does get some temporary success because we can stop the outward for a while. But that's not how God works. God, he looks past all the dirtiness and ugliness of our past. He looks past all of the, you know, the biggest thing about me not believing the love of God, the biggest thing in my life was I just knew as soon as somebody found out who the real Ed was, the love would stop. If they started doing a little digging, run a background check on me and start finding out what I've been into. All this Christian stuff wouldn't apply to me. Maybe all the goody, good people and all the, you know, maybe them, but as soon as they found out that I just got out of uh, drunk driving school, you know, and I just had to go through all that and they, I don't even have a license in my back pocket or, you know, whatever it was at the time, like just if they find that out, nah, man because I experienced love in the world, and even me, I I wasn't able to love unconditionally. I love totally conditionally. You make me happy, I'll be nice to you. You don't make me happy, I'll make life miserable for you. That was my way I lived life. That's not how God is. That's not how his love is. He loves the miserable, and he loves the broken. He loves your mom, your dad, your brother. He loves your boss, your coworker, He loves your neighbor. He loves the one that lives above you and the one that lives below you. You know, he loves your brother that's just so angry all the time. He loves him. He's able to get around that to get to the core issue, even if we're unable to. That's why prayer puts us in contact with God that then changes our heart toward the people that are hard to love. So when you leave here, you have a story in the Bible that's very fascinating that you can use as a way to share the gospel. This guy, Naaman, has it all except something he has, he has no power over. His leprosy, money couldn't deal with it, position couldn't deal with it, uh, titles couldn't deal with it, castles or whatever he lived in couldn't deal with it. He He had something that no one could deal with but God. And God did deal with it through an obscure message. Because the cross is an obscure message. 
Hey, follow the one that died a horrific, torturous death, the God in human form who could have called legions of angels down to destroy everybody. He died anyway. And from all the worldly standards, he looked like a failure. Go ahead, follow the worldly failure. He'll change your life. That's how the first century thought of it. To die on a cross was like the worst thing. It's like it would be the equivalent, you know, of, of you know, the guy that died in the electric chair. He's your savior. Go ahead and follow him. And then what would you think? If a guy was dying in an electric chair, what would you think? He probably did something to deserve it. You don't just put people in the electric chairs for nothing. But for Jesus, it was all a setup. They even hired people to lie, for, lie about him. People were like spreading gossip about him. And his love was so strong that it, incur- it, it incited hatred in the political power and the religious power structure of the day. And just like Naaman, go to Jordan River. That's foolish. I know. Do it. Yeah, but I'm not going to. Man, the rivers are cleaner. You know, my, this religion over here doesn't require anything from me. And this religion over here, you know, they promise nirvana. And this religion over here says, if I just go to church, that'll be fine. And this religion, no, there's nobody, not, no other religion requires a relationship with God. All they require is to follow what they say. And it still leaves you empty. All the religious action still leaves a person empty. You must be born again. You, you can only receive life from the inside. How would he be cleansed of our sins? By immersing ourselves fully in the judgment that Jesus Christ took for us on the cross. That's it. And the people in your life, they need to hear this. Not just from me. Invite them to church for sure. Bring them. Tell them about the radio station. Point them out on the app and have them listen in private. Great. But your friends and family, the people that are in your life need to hear this from you. You're here today, you need to hear it from me. But so many other people aren't here today, they need to hear it from you. You are equipped to share the love of God. Right? Because everybody believes in New Zealand, and except for like three or four people, you've never been there. And we all believe in Jesus. Why? Because of the evidence of a changed life. The Bible says that there were 500 people that witnessed his resurrection, like in the day, that touched him, ate with him, hung out with him, like Jesus died, but he also rose again. That's power. The power of the cross is verified in the power of the resurrection. Jesus Christ is alive. And the reason there's power in my words today is because of the life of Jesus Christ. These are not merely English words, but rather words that are activated and and made, brought to life through the power of God, his resurrection power. Your marriage needs resurrection power. Your singleness needs resurrection power. Your bitterness needs resurrection power. Your conflict needs resurrection power. The good news is, by faith in Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors through Christ who died and rose again for us. So Father, we, uh, I'm just encouraged, God, by the simple truth of the, of the gospel, the good news, that our sins can be forgiven, that you would move and activate and motivate a church to live out the gospel life, that even on a gathering here in midweek, we would not be religious, but we'd be hungry 
we would be thirsting. You said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I pray for those today listening that are identifying themselves by their sin. They still consider themselves a harlot, a drunkard, a thief, a liar, a deceiver, but rather, God, by faith, they are new creations in Christ. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That you would empower us to walk in the newness of life, in the newness of our life, no matter how old we are. And we ask, God, for you to move on the hearts and the souls of those listening today who would finally admit and dip themselves seven times on their pride into the waters of salvation. It's to be saved. They would admit that they're distant from you. They would admit that, that what they have is not working for them. They would admit the loneliness they have, the emptiness they have, the, the fear of death that they possess, the, the bitterness, the anger. When they think of you, God, they're just mad. Would you soften the edge of that anger and draw them to yourself that today would be the day of life change. Today would be the day of turning in a new direction. Today would be the day that you would give them a new life and explode into them your love. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that today, right now, in this moment. And I would just ask for you to, to get, to stand up where you are and to walk up to this stage. That you would say today, as I'm standing and I'm walking, that I'm physically in my mind recognizing that I'm leaving my present, my present place in life. And that's symbolized by where you are in the chair. Is that you? Come on up, bro. Come on up. So, come on. And, and so you're leaving your present place just in your chair, and you're saying, you're saying, I'm leaving my present place in life. And this will be the memorable. So what's your name? Andrew. So Andrew just had five steps, but maybe you need 20 or 40. I know for me, I was sitting in the back row as far as you could be from the pastor. That's where I was sitting. And I got up and I walked down. Maybe that's you today. Not only maybe, it is you today. And you're here to come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ right here. Right here. So just get up out of your seat and walk down here. And join Andrew in committing your life to Jesus Christ. Just do it. Right now, we're going to sing a song. And so let's just sing this song together. Andrew, you hang out for a minute. Hey, one of the brothers, can you guys come up? Maybe Matt, can you come up? Lay your hands on him. Come up and comfort him and encourage him as he's just nervous. Like, just let him be in that place. You got a lot of brothers now, so you got good. So who else is going to say, that's me? Let's sing this song as we wait for you to get up. We're going to wait for you. And then I'm going to lead you in a prayer. So let's just sing together. A thousand times I've failed So your mercy remains Should I stumble again I'm caught in your grace Everlasting Your light will shine When all else fades Never ends Glory goes beyond
above all else my purpose remains the art of losing myself in bringing you praise everlasting your light will shine when all else fades never ending your glory goes beyond all fame my heart and my soul give you control consume me from the inside out oh, let justice and praise become my embrace to love you from the inside out everlasting your light will shine when all else fades anyone else that would say that's me that your heart and your soul is crying out that today is the day of your salvation where you come to Jesus and you submit your life to him I recognize for the sake of those who are on the radio or on the internet today like as the gospel goes out to you that God sees you where you are he knows where you are but for the sake of you in this room the appointment of God I have I have a whole a set of six more pages on this Bible study tonight that we didn't cover for the sake of God sharing the gospel and the good news for you. So who else is here that would say, that's me, that my life, you're describing my life. I need to walk from newness. I need to walk into the newness of life. I need to have that life that's changed. I want to be born again and my sins forgiven. I want to have my failures acknowledged and covered by God. Is there anyone else before I pray with them? And for the sake of that, just like maybe you're fearful right now. Yes, yes. Praise God. Praise God. So we're going to need some folks. Come on up. Come on up. Come on up. All right, guys, here we go. I want you to pray right now and ask God to forgive you. So you can repeat after me. You could say, God, I come to you today. And I admit that I've sinned against you. I've failed. And I ask you, God, to forgive me of all of my sins. Not because of my goodness, but because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I commit my life to you today. From this day forward, I will serve you and follow you. Help me, God, to turn away from my sinful past and follow you. And God, I pray for those that are here today that have heard you, those that are listening on the radio right now, those that, that, that you have just, this was their night. This is it, this moment. That you would guard and protect them. That this is a real, this is real. That what they're doing is real. 
but that the seed of the good news would go deep into their hearts and that we would be able to watch them grow, see them lead their family, to, to acknowledge and hear their testimony and to live life, Lord, and to do life together for the sake of those that they're connected with. So bless them and encourage them that you might be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.